Well, good morning. I want to begin today by reading two fishing stories straight out of the Bible. The first one is in Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. You have a copy of the Scriptures of your own. I I invite you to find that. I'm going to start in Luke 5 and verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the Word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. That's the first story. Please remember that story. Keep it in mind. We'll come back to it later. And now I want to read the second one. This one is found in John's Gospel. You can find that there in your own Bible. John's Gospel, chapter 21, and I'm going to start here in verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Just a little historical footnote here. We just read about the Lake of Gennesaret. Now it's called the Sea of Tiberias, and it's sometimes called the Sea of Galilee. Here's the deal. It's all referring to the same body of water, okay? The Romans had one way of referring to it. The locals had another way. People throughout Palestine called it yet another thing. It had three main names, but it's all referring to the same body of water. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but they, that night they caught nothing. Now, just a reminder, this story, very different from the earlier one we read, this one is happening after the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is one of these post-resurrection stories we're reading here. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you caught any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, I'm going to skip now down to verse uh, 10, down to verse 10. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. 
Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Wow, what provocative stories. I think you'll agree those two stories, while different and happening at very different times in the life and ministry of Jesus on earth, I think you'll agree they have a lot in common. Both stories have Jesus intervening and telling professional fishermen how to fish, of all things. And both times, the disciples had been fishing all night and caught absolutely nothing. Another thing they have in common is that in both stories, Jesus tells them to let down their net either on a different side of the boat or in another place, like in deeper water. And finally, in both stories, the disciples are resistant. In fact, they're skeptical toward Jesus' guidance. I mean, what does he know about fishing? They're the professionals. But when they do what he says, in both stories, they get a huge catch of fish that is so massive, it is actually difficult to handle. I think there's a whole lot we can learn from these two stories about fishing. Well, if you've been with us this month of August, you know we're in a series called Potency and Proximity. And we've learned that God is calling us, all of us who are real disciples, to be fishers of people. As we've put it, to get in on what he's already doing in this world. And what is he doing? Among many other things, he is drawing people to himself, young and old, everywhere in between, people from all different places in society. And the idea is that if we're going to be effective as fishers of people, we need potent lives, and we need to keep the message potent and not strip away either the good parts or the the unpleasant parts, and we need to have proximity to unbelievers. If you lose potency or proximity, you're not going to be effective. They must go together. But in today's message, I want to turn a bit of a corner here, and I want to talk to you about divine appointments. Alpha begins this September the 13th. We've been talking to you about that. Hope all of you have heard by now. Hope you're well aware of what is happening. This gives us a marvelous opportunity to make a difference in someone's life. What it's going to look like is every Tuesday evening, starting September 13th, the Latham Sanctuary is going to be transformed into a sort of life-saving station. The gospel is going to be shared in its fullness all those 11 weeks. And each week will kind of add to the other. And both the good news and the challenging, quote, bad news of the gospel will be shared. It is a fabulous opportunity. It may be, in fact, the best opportunity for people that you love and care about to come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But the question is, are we willing to do what he says? Are we open to divine appointments? Are you and I willing to cast the net on the other side of the boat? 
So today, I'm going to suggest that there are at least, there are probably many more, but two lessons that I want to highlight from the stories that we read earlier. And both of them are directly pertinent, I think, to how God is going to use us this fall through Alpha. So here's the first lesson. The fruitful Christian life, and not every Christian's life is all that fruitful, by the way, just a fact. The fruitful Christian life involves doing daily what the Lord prompts and directs and guides us to do. In other words, the fruitful life is not a life where we just kind of put ourselves on automatic pilot and just sort of go through the motions and think, well, it's going to be the same every single day. Now think about it. These disciples were seasoned fishermen. Galilee was their surf and turf. They knew every inch of the Sea of Galilee or Sea of Tiberias or Lake Gennesaret, whichever you, you want to call it. It's called all three. They knew all the niches along its coastline. They had grown up there. They had been fishing with their fathers there long before they ever met Jesus. It was the family business, and they knew it so well that they probably just went through the same routine every day, dropped the net down on the same side of the boat, hardly without a thought, same old, same old. But along comes Jesus. He'd not grown up on this lake. He had grown up in a town called Nazareth, which was inland. And he was a carpenter by training, not a fisherman. But he says, look, I'm going to make you, follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. But you need to understand something. If you take this challenge on, if you keep on fishing in the same old way, this tired old formula or technique, it's not going to be effective. If you follow my guidance, I'll give you divine appointments, and I will make you more effective than you can even imagine. Back in 1988, I was living in Buffalo, New York. I'm really a fan of Buffalo. I have great memories from there. I lived there a total of 13 months working on a Billy Graham crusade. And at that time, there was a ministry in downtown Buffalo called the Buffalo Christian Center. It was on Pearl Street. The building is still there, wonderful as ever, but it has been repurposed, and it's no longer the Buffalo Christian Center at this point. But what a building it was. I mean, it had a bowling alley. <laughs> it had a swimming pool. It had a, a, an auditorium that seated 1,000 people. It had cafes and offices. It was impressive. And it had been led for decades by a man named Alan Forbes. In fact, recently, a few months ago, a friend and I went to Buffalo for some basketball games. We drove by the building. I was just curious. And the, the theater part of it has been named in honor of Alan Forbes. It's called the Forbes Theater now. Okay, you can go and see it. And there's all kinds of events held there. But Alan Forbes, who was alive then and leading this ministry, had heard me preach a few times around Buffalo in those months, and he'd had a few conversations, and, and he asked to meet with me, and he asked about me being his, his successor at the Buffalo Christian Center. 
and becoming director, staying in Buffalo and, and taking on the ministry. But you need to know, at the time, the ministry was in significant decline. And since we were friends, I asked Alan to explain from his perspective why this ministry had gone from being so incredibly effective back in the four, late 40s and 50s and 60s until it was almost totally ineffective in the 80s. And so he explained. He said it's because we tried to mimic the pattern of what God had used back then instead of hanging on to the principles behind the pattern and seeing what new methods God might want us to use. And then he used this little ditty, which you've heard me use. He said, we forgot that methods are many. Principles are few. Methods always change. Principles never do. And I said, Alan, this is so intriguing. Tell me more. He said, well, uh, I, I could spend hours, but... He said back in the late 40s, I think he became the director of Youth for Christ in Buffalo in 1948, I think it was. He said back in the, the late 40s, I mean, God was doing a new thing. It was awesome. And we, we packed out any place that we booked in those days with young people. It was exciting. It was vibrant. It was pulsing with life. And we had exciting evangelists like Tory Johnson. He began to name a whole litany. Jay Kessler and Jack Wurtson and Rayford Johnson and Wes Aram and many, many others. And it's like we could do no wrong. Anytime we called a meeting, I mean, it was packed out. And every single time we saw people responding to Christ, it was just amazing. We thought we had cracked the code for reaching young people. We had the right music that they loved. We had the icebreakers and the mixers that they loved and enjoyed. We just thought this is gonna go on forever. Until it didn't. And in the 1960s, something happened and it was just like turning off a spigot. I mean, we did the same promotion, had the same music, same kind of speakers, same approach, and the young people just stayed away in droves. But instead of examining our methods and saying, okay, let's keep the principles we've been using and let's follow some different methods, we just tried to double down and do more of what we'd been doing. We just couldn't let go of the past. We couldn't see. Maybe, just maybe, God wanted us to cast our nets on the other side of the boat. And the board was reluctant to change because they wanted to protect things, of course. That's a part of what a board is there for, to try to protect things and keep things intact. And so we were just unwilling, and that's brought us to the sad state of things today. We followed the methods, he said, Rex, instead of the Lord behind the methods. I will never forget that conversation. It was raw, it was emotional, and brutally honest. And Alan was teared up as he talked about it, and he said, we need someone who can take us into a new future and change things around here. And I, I, I prayed about that for a few weeks, and I politely declined. I just, at the time, couldn't see myself spending my life in Buffalo, New York. Quite honestly, no diss on Buffalo. I just wasn't ready for that at that time. But I've never forgot, methods are many, 
Principles are few. Methods always change. Principles never do. And I would suggest that any ministry, any church, any Christian that forgets that lesson is doomed to stagnation and ineffectiveness. Now, I find it intriguing when you study the ministry of Jesus. And by the way, Jesus is our model more than, for more than just morality, isn't it? Shouldn't he be our model for ministry to some degree? I think he is. And if you study the ministry of Jesus, it's pretty hard to pin him down. I mean, just do a test study yourself if you want to. Just look at two chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 8 and 9. There's 10, 10 different miracles or exorcisms and deliverances recorded in just those two chapters. But here's the surprise. They're all done a little bit differently. And one, it's a leper, and he asks him to reach out his hand, and he's healed. And the second, there's a centurion servant. He doesn't even go to where the servant is. He just speaks the word from a distance, and the person's healed. On another occasion, a paralytic is brought to Jesus, and he looks at him and says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Get up, take your mat, and go home. Well, he didn't do that in any of the others. And then... A little bit later, a woman comes along. He doesn't touch her. She touches his cloak, and she's healed from that moment. And those are just a few of the miracles. Now, now here's my point. Imagine a class reunion. You know, like we have high school reunions or college. Imagine a reunion of all these people that Jesus healed or delivered. And they get together 10 years later and they're comparing notes as they're celebrating the Lord and being thankful. And to their shock, they find out that he dealt with each one of them in a different way. He kept the methods fresh and different and changing. There are some similarities, but no two stories are exactly alike. Don't you find that amazing? That's the Lord we serve, and he wants us to get in on what he's doing, but if we want to be a part of those divine appointments, we've got to keep our methods fresh, and we've got to stay sensitive to him. So question, why do you think those disciples were kind of fishing on that side of the boat? You know what I think? We've always done it that way. That's just the way we've always done it around here, and it, it usually provides something, maybe not much, but we usually catch something. And along comes Jesus and says, look, if you want to be fishers of people, you're going to have to be willing to fish a bit differently and change your methods at times as I lead you into divine appointments. So let me say it, the fruitful Christian life, Oh, and I pray that's the life you want. I believe it is. It involves daily being open, the Lord says, to my guidance and my direction. Now, my only question before we move on is, honestly now, raw and real, does that describe you? Oh, whoa, I've been challenging you this month. You remember what I said? Please, please take Take the challenge. Get up every day and say, Lord, it's a brand new day. What a glorious opportunity. Let me see where you're already working. I want to get in on it. Boy, that's the great adventure right there. 
And that's what Jesus was calling them to. Does that describe you and me? So that's the first lesson. But there's one other lesson I wanna highlight from these two amazing fishing stories. You got your seatbelt buckled? Here it is. I'm talking to disciples today. Now this is, boy, this is a lesson he wants us to get. The Lord Jesus has the prerogative and the right to put us at the right place in the right time and often for purposes that he alone understands. That's a biggie. That's a big lesson we've got to learn. If you walk in step with Jesus and open yourself up for divine appointments, I got news, he's gonna alter your plans. Somebody has humorously said, if you wanna make God laugh, right? Tell him your plans. Well, let me give you an example of this from the Apostle Paul's life. I'll speed up the story. It's a long, but let me hit the highlights. It was the end of his third missionary journey. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he wrote this letter to the Christians in Rome. We call it the Book of Romans. That's his letter that he wrote. And he tells them something interesting in chapter 15. It's about his ambition and his plans, what he plans to do. He said there in chapter 15, verse 23, but now that there's no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to see you, he'd never been to Rome yet, by the way, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. Whoa, you got plans to go to Spain? Yep, there's no gospel witness there at all right now. That was his plan, to go to Spain. But guess what? He's in Jerusalem. Spain is way over there. And guess what's right in between? Rome. So it sounds like a sound plan. I hope to visit you while passing through and have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. This was Paul's plan, to visit the Christians in Rome as he was on his way to Spain, a place where there was no Christian witness at the time. That's his plan. Things didn't go as he planned. Has this ever happened to you? You had this marvelous plan laid out. You thought life was gonna look this way, but instead, it changes. And so Paul's in Jerusalem, and some people begin to treat him badly. Can you imagine that? They began to gossip and backbite. He kind of got stabbed in the back and betrayed some, by some people. So he gets to Rome, all right, but it's not as a free man. He goes to Rome as a prisoner. And the journey there is just awful. I mean, it involves a shipwreck, where they've all got seasickness, they're being tossed about, they barely escape with their lives, they land on this island, he gets bit by a poisonous viper. I mean, this is not a good day, all right? And all these awful things are happening as he's a prisoner on his way to Rome. Now, while he's in prison in Rome, he writes at least four letters that we have in our Bible, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, those are the four letters they wrote from that particular imprisonment. Now, when he writes to the church in Philippi, where his colleague Timothy has been, telling them about some of the awful things that Paul's been going through, I don't know for sure, but I imagine the Christians were expecting it to be a bummer of a letter. Oh, no. Paul's been through all this awful stuff. He's probably bitter, and now he's languishing in Caesar's prison in Rome. This is going to be a real depressing letter. But instead, they open it up 
And here's what they read. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What's happened to me? Shipwreck, getting bit by a poison snake, being betrayed and stabbed in the back and gossiped about and arrested and imprisoned and dragged along this. All of that has been to advance the gospel? Yeah. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, Paul. How can you say such a thing? Because they think I'm a captive audience, but they're really a captive audience. And every six hours, a new guard gets chained to me. And guess what? I get to talk about Jesus. I've got a captive audience. This is a good deal God has orchestrated. God was giving Paul a divine appointment, and Paul seized it and represents Jesus well. And as a result of his imprisonment, the whole palace guard, the praetorian guard, heard the gospel, and many of them believed. And toward the end of this very letter, what we call chapter 4, verse 22, he said, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Why are there saints in ungodly Caesar's household? There are saints in Caesar's household because Paul is in Caesar's prison. Why is Paul in Caesar's prison? Is it a cosmic accident? Is this just another example of bad things happening to good people? No, 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 you gotta get it. He describes it in chapter one, verse 16. I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Catch those words. I am put here. In other words, this is a divine appointment. This is simply a part of God's design for my life, and I embrace it as a part of the great adventure. I had plans. God said, cool plans, Paul. I've got better ones. I'm gonna have you fishing on the other side of the boat. I'm gonna put you in a Roman prison cell because I have special plans for you there. And as we look at all that in retrospect, we go, ain't God brilliant? But when you're going through it, you think God has got it out of control here. Paul was being daily guided by the Spirit. He was open to divine appointments. And making plans, folks, is fine. You just need to remember that God has better ones sometimes, okay? And so that openness to divine appointments is gonna be the key to Alpha this fall. God wants to put you and me in the right place at the right time to talk to the right people and invite them to come with us to Alpha. I hope you'll grab one of these invitation cards today. We make these available to you. If you don't have one in your hand already, you can get one at the information center right after the service, and these are simply invitation pieces. Give them out freely, but particularly to people that you're praying for and deeply care about. Let's take a pause here, and I want to invite you to watch a video with me about Alpha. It's less than two minutes long, and then I'll come right back after the video, and we'll wrap up. We all have that person in our lives 
a neighbor we pass by every day outside our homes. That coworker we see at the office five days a week. Or those friends we catch up with every once in a while. People we wish could know and experience the love of God. How do we share it? Where do we even start? Deep inside, we know that it'll cost us something to open up our lives and share our faith. It takes time, vulnerability, sacrifice, the risk of rejection. But this is our call, to open our lives and to share Christ with the people close to us. Because it's only through opening your life up that spaces for honest conversations are possible. Spaces where people can truly be themselves and explore the deepest parts of life with people they know and trust. That's why we're running Alpha. It's a course over several weeks where you can invite your friends to explore life's biggest questions over a meal. It's a chance for you to invite that person into an honest conversation about faith. Because when it's hard to find the moment, or the words, or the courage, you can simply invite. Alpha, who will you invite? God has some divine appointments for you and me. But the question is, are we open to go where he says, to speak when he prompts us? I want you to dream with me for a moment. Wouldn't it be awesome if we just became so overwhelmed at Grace Fellowship with new converts, new believers, we just didn't know what to do with them? We could hardly haul the nets in. There were just so many people. And if we're truly disciples of Jesus at Grace, not fans of Rex Keeter, not into some cultural movement, not just in love with the institution of the church, if we're really disciples of Jesus, we're going to want to get in on where he is already working and be open to divine appointments. See, some of you are angry and upset because this life, your, this, this week rather, your, your life went sideways. And your plans this week, this month, this year just didn't work out. And this is not exactly what you thought life would look like right now. Have you ever considered that maybe your life went sideways for the sake of the gospel? And what you consider sideways is actually God's plan? Because just like Paul, he's giving you a divine appointment. This October, just starting in several weeks, Dr. John Dixon is going to be starting uh, to work at Wheaton College, and he's going there as an, an endowed professorship. He's a very respected man, has perhaps the top religious podcast in all of Australia. He's Australian. That's his home country. So he's going to be teaching at Wheaton, a very, probably written 20 or more books, just a very, very respected Christian leader. And 
he tells about how he came to Christ. He came through the witness of an ordinary middle-aged mom named Glenda. She's the one that God used to really lead Dr. John Dixon to Christ. He said in Australia, the public schools used to have this scripture class that they offered, and it was taught by a volunteer from a local church. And Glenda, Glenda, this middle-aged mom, became his teacher. And he said eventually, Glenda invited the whole class to her house on Friday afternoons for lunch and just honest conversation about Jesus, kind of like we're going to do with Alpha, really. And so I'm just going to read now exactly how he writes it. So we went back the next Friday and the next Friday and the next Friday. Slowly but surely, the Jesus stuff became as important as the food. So we came with more and more friends. Some of the 15-year-olds were the worst sinners in the school. But Glenda just opened her heart every Friday afternoon and treated us all like we were family. There was one night when my friend Daniel was rather intoxicated. And we knew we couldn't take him to his house. His dad was an army man and, and would be livid. But we didn't want to leave him on the street. So we all said, let's take him to Glenda's house. She'll have him. She'll clean him up. So it was near midnight, and we knocked on her door. It turned out she was finishing up some kind of posh dinner party with lots of guests, but she didn't bat an eye. She welcomed us in, showed us straight past her guest into the back of the house. She got some spare clothes and said, throw him in the shower, clean him up, and just put him to bed. We'll, we'll sort it out in the morning. And so we did. The next morning, we went back to Glenda's house around 10 to pick up Daniel. He was sitting at the kitchen table, and Glenda was making him bacon and eggs, and they were having a good old chat. We took Daniel, this is my favorite line in the whole story, we took Daniel to Glenda's house because she had left a real impression on us that Christians actually like sinners. Wow. Glenda had left the impression that Christians actually like sinners. Imagine that. We had no doubt that she hated our drinking habits. She herself was a teetotaler and talked openly about avoiding alcohol. But even in that situation, her first instinct was not to condemn us, but to love us more. And it was extraordinary. After about six months of scripture classes, Friday afternoon events, and the incident with Daniel, we found ourselves thinking that Jesus was real. that he is inescapable, and that he is powerful. Amen. So about six or eight months into it, about five of us became Christians. We really surrendered to Christ's lordship and accepted his mercy. Years later, Dixon writes, I was starting my own ministry and trying to explore new modes of reaching people. So my first thought was, I'll go to Glenda and ask her what her secret was. Since several of us had become Christians through her influence, I figured she must have some strategy. I went to her fully expecting her 
to tell me about some program she implemented or some particular way she had of sharing the gospel. Without batting an eye, she said, prayer. I was really disappointed. But she continued, that year a bunch of us who taught scripture decided to make it a year of prayer just to plead the Lord of the harvest to do something special. And we did. By the end of the year, there you all were, confessing Jesus. And Dixon concludes with these words, for an activist like me, that was a poignant lesson. In the end, the harvest is God's. It's not mine. It's not my creativity. It's not my skill. It's God's. We just have to bring our ministry to God and cry out to him to give us success. Amen. 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 Father, forgive us when we think it's about our creativity, our cleverness, our ability to persuade. Help us to learn from people like Glenda that it's your harvest, that we just cry out to you in desperation, the Lord of the harvest, to bring forth people out of the harvest field, people who will come to repentance and faith in you. That's what we want, Lord. So open us up to divine appointments. Father, use us as your ambassadors in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.